This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. J. Edgar Hoover was the quintessential government man. He grew up in Washington, D.C. He went to college there in 1913, got his first job there, and then spent his entire career there. A legendary 48 years as the head of the Federal Bureau of Investigations. And Hoover devoted most of that career to hating and going after communists. The Communist Party of the United States is a fifth column if there ever was one. That was Hoover testifying at a congressional hearing on March 27, 1947. He goes on to say that the Communist Party was, quote, far better organized than the Nazis, end quote, and that their goal was to overthrow the U.S. government. Hoover's goal? To destroy them. Communism in reality is not a political party. It is a way of life, an evil and malignant way of life. It reveals a condition akin to disease that spreads like an epidemic. And like an epidemic, a quarantine is necessary to keep it from infecting this nation. Along with his five-decade crusade against communism, Hoover is also known for how he took down his enemies, through intimidation, blackmail, to illegal wiretapping, through his famous counterintelligence program known as Cointelpro. Lawyers under oath to place into the record a litany of FBI dirty tricks and illegal activities conducted against the women's movement, war protesters, civil rights groups and individuals deemed a threat to domestic security. That was a news broadcast covering the 1975 congressional hearing on an investigation into the practices of the FBI under Hoover. Lawyer Frederick Schwartz testified that the worst offenses were directed at civil rights leader Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. When, in 1964, the FBI sent King a tape recording of his alleged adultery along with a letter telling him to commit suicide. The Bureau went so far as to mail anonymous letters to Dr. King and his wife, which were mailed shortly before he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, and finishes with this suggestion. King, there is only one thing left for you to do. You know what it is. You have just 34 days in which to do it. This exact number has been selected for a specific reason. It has definite practical significance. It was 34 days before the award. You are done. Again, these congressional hearings took place in 1975, three years after J. Edgar Hoover died in 1972. While alive, Hoover's public image was remarkably different. On May 8, 1964, President Lyndon B. Johnson changed the law so that Hoover would not be forced to retire at age 70, making J. Edgar Hoover effectively the FBI director for life. Edgar, the law says that you must retire next January when you reach your 70th birthday. And knowing you as I do, Edgar, I know you won't break the law. But the nation cannot afford to lose you, and therefore, by virtue of and pursuant to the authority vested in the President of the United States, I have just now signed an executive order exempting you from compulsory retirement for an indefinite period of time. And again, Edgar, congratulations and accept the gratitude of a grateful nation. And that is what Hoover did. 
J. Edgar Hoover remained the head of the FBI until the day he died, May 2nd, 1972, at the age of 77. Now, there is much more to be learned about J. Edgar Hoover and much more that his life reflects about America in the 20th century. And both things are richly revealed in the new biography, G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. It's by Beverly Gage, professor of 20th century U.S. history at Yale University, and she joins us now. Professor Gage, welcome back to On Point. Thanks, Magna. It's great to be here. You know, um, of the many astonishing things that I learned about Hoover from reading your book, one that jumped out at me almost immediately was that he held the assistant FBI director job at the age of 25. And then when he was just 29, he became director of the FBI. I mean, that is astonishingly young, Beverly. What presaged that in his life that allowed him to reach such heights in Washington at such a young age? Well, he was definitely a go-getter and was full of energy and ambition when he was a young man. And uh, he also just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And I think that that's actually a big part of the story of his life. He happened to graduate from law school in 1917 at just the moment the U.S. was entering World War I. And so he went right into quite a lot of responsibility in the Justice Department. And that sort of thing happened over and over again in his life. Uh, At the moment that there was some sort of crisis or emergency, he was the available man. Mm. Okay. well, so let's then uh, go back to, you know, the earliest days of his life, because, again, I didn't know that he, you know, was a not just a government man, but a Washington, D.C. man, right, through and through. Um, And it's, of course, Washington, D.C. at the late, at the end of the 19th and early 20th century. So can you talk about, um, you know, his his childhood in D.C. and the the influences that then he carried through his whole life? Yeah, you're right. He is an almost pure creature of Washington. He's born there. He dies there. He never lives anywhere else. And he's, I think, a creature of the city in lots of other ways as well. First of all, even in the late 19th century, he's born into a family with a tradition of federal government service, which was pretty unusual at the time because the federal government wasn't very big. It didn't do very many things. For instance, there was no Bureau of Investigation at that point. But he comes of age in this tradition of government professional career service that's just kind of taking off as he's growing up. Uh, And then the other thing that I think is really important about Washington is that in that moment, it is truly a Southern city. And during the years that Hoover was growing up there, it's a city that was actively segregating and coming up with new laws, enforcing racial segregation in new ways. So he went to segregated schools. His employment was always segregated. And I think that had a really dramatic uh, effect on his own racial outlook. Well, and it's not just living in a segregated environment that had the impact. I mean, he was an active participant in it. The story that you tell about um, his uh, fraternity at George Washington, uh, you know, in the first part of the, the 20th century. Can you please tell that story, Beverly, because it's kind of mind blowing? 
It really surprised me when I began to do that research as well. So I think it's pretty widely known that Hoover had racist views, that he was racist. But one of the things that I wanted to try to figure out in this biography was where did those ideas come from? Washington is one part of the story. But then uh, I began to look into his college fraternity, which was this organization called Kappa Alpha. Um, He was very devoted to Kappa Alpha, became its chapter president, was active as an alum for many, many years, drew many of the first generation of FBI officials out of Kappa Alpha. And it turns out that Kappa Alpha was an explicitly Southern segregationist fraternity that had been created in 1865 to kind of carry on the cause of the lost, uh, the lost cause of the white South in the aftermath of the Civil War. And by the time Hoover joined it, its kind of national standard bearers, its most famous alums were people like Thomas Dixon, who was a famous novelist in that moment, who wrote the books upon which Birth of a Nation, the sort of famously racist film of 1915 celebrating the Ku Klux Klan was based. Um, And so you can just see Hoover's mind being shaped by uh, this broader environment, but by this very specific institution, which he was very devoted to and really loved his his whole life. Beverly, I mean, it's a it's a hallmark of how richly researched your bio is because the details are astonishing that by the even by the 1950s, Kappa Alpha uh, was still so devoted to this lost cause mythology that they uh, they held um, Confederate dress balls, shows in blackface, <laughs> secession ceremonies. And so these were the type of things that, that Hoover participated in. Yeah, we don't have evidence that in the 1950s he was participating in the sense that he was showing up at those events because he's a big celebrity by that point and he's a little reclusive. Um, But he is certainly still very loyal to Kappa Alpha. They give him during those same years their highest national award for an alum. He writes sympathetic things for uh, for their journal. Uh, and he is kind of still in, in the thick of all of that. Okay. Well, the reason why I wanted to point that out is because presumably when he was in Kappa Alpha in college um, at George Washington, that he was participating in those same kinds of grotesque rituals. But the, the the broader point that you make in the book is that like this is the kind of environment that then informs, in a sense, the internal culture that he builds up as director of the FBI. I mean, in in your words, a model for the overwhelmingly male, virtually all-white, sociable, but hierarchical and ritual-bound FBI uh, that Hoover created, right? That's right. So when he becomes director in 1924, as you said, at this incredibly young age of 29, His initial vision for the Bureau, which is pretty small at that point and doesn't have a lot of, um, there's not a lot of federal jurisdiction in those years, his vision is really that he's going to create it as this very tight-knit group of professional, college-educated lawyers and accountants who are just a lot like him. A lot of them went to GW or were in Kappa Alpha, his college at George Washington University. 
country. Uh, and he kind of kept control over all of it and really built the Bureau in his own image. Well, we are talking with Professor Beverly Gage today. Her new book is G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. It is the first real deeply uh, researched biography of Hoover in almost 30 years. And it is full of some incredible details, not only about the man, but about the country he lived in. So we'll have a lot more about that when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com OnPoint today to get 10% off your first month. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and Beverly Gage is our guest today. She's author of a remarkable new biography. It's called G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. And we have an excerpt of it at onpointradio.org. And Professor Gage, by the way, we're already getting some comments uh, on Facebook about sort of this, um, you know, this, this relationship between uh, Hoover and the country uh, that he uh, lived in. And uh, Abu Idris Umar at Talib on Facebook is saying Hoover didn't go from being a hero to a villain. He was the same person the entire time. We, or rather the majority population, changed over time. Hoover always saw people of color as threats to the established order, manipulated by what he called communists. So just remark on that quickly, Beverly, about uh, Hoover was the same, but it's the nation that changed. I think that there is a lot of truth to that. So one of the things that was really fascinating to me in writing his biography was to see just how popular he really was for most of his life with most Americans. And uh, he today is largely considered a villain, right? When you say J. Edgar Hoover, when I would tell people I was writing a biography of J. Edgar Hoover, they would say, oh, why do you want to spend so much time with that terrible man? And, and I think rightly has that reputation. Uh, but one of the things that I really wanted to recover was this popularity, because as your commenter says, uh, it wasn't despite many of the things he was doing to people of color, to radical groups, to other groups that he didn't like. It was actually because of it. And that says a lot, not only about Hoover, but about our country at large and some of the parts of history that we, we don't like to talk about as much. Yeah. Well, Professor Gagel, let me ask you, why did you want to write an, uh, uh, a bio about Hoover? Because, I mean, you've been working on this for a long time, since 2008 or nine. I mean, what was the genesis of like, hey, I'm going to write a bio about Hoover? <laughs> 
Well, I'm very self-punishing, so that was really the uh, idea. Um, no, so I, I didn't think it would take quite as long as it did, but I knew from the beginning that it was going to be a really big project, and that was part of the appeal. Uh, some of it was that Hoover was this amazing vehicle to tell a big story about the 20th century and about parts of our history uh, that we maybe don't think about as much, whether that is some of what we were just talking about, or simply the growth of the federal government itself, the mm. national security state, and Hoover really embodies all of that. And then the second piece was that there were lots and lots of new records that had come out since the last generation of biography. And so I am a history nerd, and I wanted to get my hands on those records. But as it turns out, there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of pages of such records. And so, uh, yeah, so it took a while to do. How many pages do you think you actually went through of documentation? Well, it's funny because FBI agents and Hoover himself loved to produce paper. And that's really great. Uh, on the one hand, if you are a historian, it's a lot of what you want to know is written down. But uh, of course, it means you've got a volume problem. Um, so I certainly went through hundreds of thousands of pages of documents. I mean, it may have gotten into the, the millions, uh, not necessarily reading every word of every investigative report, some of which are still pretty heavily redacted, uh, but uh, making my way through really, you know, just vast array of material. Good Lord. Okay. Well, so let's talk a little bit more um, about the sort of foundational influences in in Hoover's life before we be get to what he did as as FBI director. Because in the book, you write about um, religion in, in J. Edgar Hoover's life. Um, he was raised a Protestant, and he kept uh, his faith the entire uh, his entire life. And here's a little bit about what Hoover himself said about that. The moral strength of our nation has decreased alarmingly. We must return to the teachings of God if we are to cure this sickness. So talk about uh, religion in Hoover's life, Beverly. I think it was a really core element, not only of his childhood and his personal makeup, but of the way that he presented himself to the country. And politically, the, the sort of puzzle that I'm trying to work out in the book is that on the one hand, Hoover is a standard bearer for a kind of professional, expert, investigative, just the facts, nonpartisan government service that we would tend to think about as maybe a, a progressive or a liberal tradition. And then on the other hand, he's a really powerful and very outspoken social conservative on lots of issues, race and communism, but on religion as well. Uh, and it's kind of strange to think about the FBI director giving these kind of stern moral lectures, which he loved to give, as your, as your clip suggested, to mothers and fathers, to the nation at large, kind of admonishing people to go to Sunday school, um, to return to their moral core. And some of that had to do with the struggle against atheistic communism. Um, others was his kind of individualistic moral approach to crime and law and order. But I think it's really core to understanding him as, as a cultural figure and for understanding how he 
built the FBI. Do you know, actually, Beverly, I'd like to flip the script on that a second because he said it's kind of strange. I'll be honest, um, in, in in my lifetime, it it does not seem strange because we hear such overt pronouncements of Christianity from uh, politicians all the time. I mean, every president attends that national prayer breakfast, for example. Um, what's strange to me is that are you saying that it was unusual for someone like Hoover to do that in you know the mid twentieth uh, century when when he was uh, head of the FBI that that those sort of talking about religion and and values was was not the norm? Well, I think the key is that Hoover wasn't a politician. Um, uh, okay. He was an appointed government servant, right? Okay. Whose main duty and loyalty was supposed to be just the enforcement of federal law. That was his job. And so the idea that alongside that, he made himself into this incredibly powerful social commentator and cultural icon and uh, outspoken political voice. I think those are the pieces that are interesting to put together. Ah, interesting. Okay. Well, so can you tell me then about how, what was the reputation of the FBI when he became director again at the age of 29? Yeah, it was not good. <laughs> he actually uh, came out of two different scandals that had happened when he was there, and he was involved in both, but but managed to survive. One was public backlash against the Palmer raids, which were a series of deportation raids aimed at anarchists and communists and, and other radicals. He had helped to engineer those as a 24 and 25-year-old, um, but there was a lot of criticism of those on civil liberties grounds. He survived that scandal only to enter the Warren Harding years as the assistant director of the Bureau. And the Harding years had a whole series of uh, pretty basic corruption scandals, you know, poker games, whiskey dealing, bribery, the whole range of things. And Hoover was there as, as an assistant director, but he managed to survive that too. So the funny thing is that then when he became director, he really came in as a reformer, as someone who was supposed to clean up the bureau, uh, make the bureaucracy work well, get rid of the corruption, get rid of all of the kind of invasive political investigations. Um, and that actually is how he made his name in his early years as director, doing quite a lot of what he set out to do, though, of course, we know as time went on um, that that didn't ruin his, his very method or identity. Hmm. Well, so it, and then there's sort of this interesting um, thread of how in reforming the FBI internally, uh, he also was quite savvy of savvy, excuse me, about um, uh, reforming its external image. Right. And, and Hollywood plays a role here. Uh, for example, a 1959 Warner Brothers film called The FBI Story. It stars Jimmy Stewart. And it was co-produced by J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, and then um, later in a 1965, 1965, I should say, a popular TV series was made about the Bureau called The FBI. It ran for nine seasons. So uh, we have a clip from that, uh, that TV series. The FBI. 
UM production. Tonight's episode, The Monster. The FBI. Um, Professor Gage, talk about how these films and series, uh, that Hoover used them to change the public's view of the FBI. I liked your voice on that because people of a people of a certain generation who uh, heard that I was t- uh, writing about Hoover would in fact come up and say, "Oh yeah, the FBI." <laughs> it was it was kind of a a coming of age show for uh, for many people in the '60s, I think. Um, but public relations and Hollywood, especially, were really critical to Hoover's career. And again, it's it's sort of a story where he was in the right place at the right time. The 1930s was a moment when the FBI was starting to move into crime fighting in a new way. Its agents were starting to carry guns. They were having battles with the likes of John Dillinger. Um, and that happened to be the moment that Hollywood imposed on itself the film codes. And one of the film codes said that you can't make movies in which the criminal wins anymore. Uh, And that confluence of things, Hollywood went casting about for heroes, and they found many of them um, in the story of the FBI. So Hoover got lucky there, but once he realized the power of film and the press and uh, public relations in general, he dedicated a whole wing of the FBI to that, um, and they just pumped out unbelievable amounts of copy, sometimes under Hoover's byline, sometimes just about the great things that the FBI was doing. And, you know, his view was that the work of government was not self-evident. And if you wanted public support, if you wanted appropriations, you really had to to sell it. And that's what he thought he was doing. Hmm. Now, you mentioned John Dillinger. um, And I think also the Bureau went after Machine Gun Kelly as well. Uh, But... From your from your biography, uh, we learn that J. Edgar Hoover also persistently went so far as to deny the existence of organized crime, which seems very strange to me. And I did not really understand. I didn't really understand that. Why is that? Yeah, it is funny and requires explanation because in the 30s, he really made his name, as you said, fighting all of these big celebrity criminals. But as time went on, he particularly was resistant to the idea that there was something called a mafia. So he knew that there was plenty of organized crime. He just uh, tended to say that's at the local level. He didn't want to be the one in charge of it. And he denied until there was irrefutable evidence that there was a kind of organized national crime syndicate. Uh, once that starts to become really evident in the 50s, the FBI does begin uh, moving pretty aggressively into organized crime investigations, but not as aggressively as Robert Kennedy, mm-hmm. who became attorney general at a very young age uh, in 1961, would have liked. And, and the battle over that, whether Hoover had done enough on organized crime, became one of many sources of extreme tension between those two men. So are you saying that it was just um, mostly a lack of evidence uh, apparent to Hoover uh, in the, the 30s and 40s that made him resistant to the idea of organized crime? 
Well, I think there were a couple of things going on. One was a real jurisdiction question. So, I mean, Hoover always used the question of federal jurisdiction in whatever way he wanted. Where he didn't want to do something, he would claim there was no federal jurisdiction for it. And sometimes that was, in fact, the case. When he did want to do something, he would, uh, uh, you know, kind of skirt around the law and uh, sometimes do things secretly. So that isn't a total explanation, but it is also true that there weren't a lot of federal laws to work with. The RICO laws, those sorts of things that we think about as these tools for organized crime investigation didn't exist at the time. Um, And I think another important element is that he was very nervous about his agents doing that sort of investigation because he had built the FBI's reputation on being clean cut and corruption free. And there's a lot of temptation in organized crime investigations. So he was nervous about that as well. There have been suggestions over the years that he was tied in with organized crime or they were blackmailing him in various ways. So those things are very hard to pin down with any sort of documentation that that a historian would um, really grab onto, but um, but they are certainly part of the of the public story, uh, and there's been a lot of speculation about those things. You know, Beverly, as we sort of head towards our next break here, uh, we're definitely a little later going to talk about um, uh, Hoover's battle against uh, communists and his uh, the expansive use of the power that he had as head of FBI. Um, but I'm wondering this first part of his career as uh, FBI director. Again, just reflecting back on the whole purpose of your book, which is to help us understand better the country at that time, too. What what connections or lessons would you draw about what uh, Hoover did um, and was able to do, let's say, until like the 19, late 1940s that tell us more about America? I'd say a couple of things. One is that you can see the way that the federal government grew in these kind of fits and starts in response to emergencies, uh, sometimes the Great Depression or the Second World War, um, in ways that nobody really intended. And I think that that's part of the story of Hoover's life. It's part of the story of the FBI, uh, that you can see all of this kind of happening in this emergency mode, and then we end up stuck with these methods and institutions, in his case, without a lot of accountability. Um, And I guess the other piece I think that's really critical from those years is that you can see the ways in which uh, he in particular built his power institutionally in ways that were going to go on to shape nearly everything that happened in American life every social movement that happens after the 1940s, every major political figure has to contend in some way with the FBI and with uh, this institution that Hoover built really to enforce his own worldview. Well, we are talking today with Professor Beverly Gage. She's the author of a deeply researched, remarkable new biography called G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. Uh, It's the first major biography of the former FBI director in about 30 years, and we have an excerpt of it at onpointradio.org. We'll have more in a moment. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? 
I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today our guest is Professor Beverly Gage. She is a professor of 20th century U.S. history at Yale University and author of the new biography of J. Edgar Hoover. It's called G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. We have an excerpt of it at onpointradio.org. Now, Professor Gage, um, you had talked about how um, every president, well, I mean, eight of them, right, <laughs> um, uh, over over Hoover's time as FBI director, had to contend with Hoover because he had so much power in Washington and therefore um, an impact on almost every social movement in this country for the period of a half century. And what's of the many remarkable things about that is that frequently he was extremely, spectacularly hypocritical in his persecution of uh, some of these issues and some of those social movements. I mean, for example, um, in the book, you talk about how um, uh, J. Edgar Hoover really publicly despised gambling, but he was a frequent gambler himself. I mean, so let's just listen to a little bit about how Hoover talked about gambling. The gambling problem must be viewed as a phase of the entire crime picture. Organized gambling gambling is a vicious evil. It corrupts our youth and blights the lives of our adults. It becomes a springboard for other crimes, embezzlement, robbery, and even murder. Professor Gage, can you can you help us sort of tease apart the sources of that hypocrisy? It is true that Hoover loved to go to the racetrack, um, and he was performative about only putting in $2 bets, right? So keeping this all within limits. Um, In fact, a former uh, agent at the FBI became the head of the uh, racing association. Um, And so that was one of many issues where uh, his personal behavior didn't always match up with his public statements. Two other very obvious ones that you see in the book, 
are, of course, famously uh, that he had this lifelong relationship with Clyde Tolson, who was his second in command at the FBI. Uh, they were social partners. They went to the racetrack together. They traveled together. They really acted as each other's spouses effectively. Um, and yet Hoover also was deeply anti-gay. Uh, he denied any suggestion, of course, that he himself was gay. Uh, he was key to enforcing uh, the policies which purged gay people from federal employment in the 40s and 50s. So that's one set of contradictions that I think went deep into his personal life. Um, and probably the biggest one, certainly in his professional life, was the fact that he promoted himself as an icon of law and order. And yet when you look at what the FBI was doing behind the scenes, they were often mm. um, skirting the edges of the law, if not uh, sometimes acting illegally themselves. So, um, you know, you said famously, uh, Hoover had this longtime relationship with Tolson. I actually think it's not that well known amongst many people because uh, in in reading your book, the level of detail in it was truly eye-opening to me. I mean, uh, maybe it was an open secret in Washington, but... Um, I think a lot of folks nowadays wouldn't wouldn't know this about him. And it's especially shocking because, I mean, the the lavender scare ruined uh, the lives of many, many good people. And so it, it's just hard to sort of uh, square the fact that um, Hoover himself was uh, was you know living this life with uh, with his with Tolson, but was willing to destroy the lives of others. I mean, and even talked with presidents about this, because we have uh, some tape here from a October 31st, 1964 call. Uh, and again, this is just days before the 64 presidential elections. And President Lyndon B. Johnson calls Hoover to talk about his closest aide, Walter Jenkins, who had been arrested for having sex with a man in a Washington bathroom. And here's a clip from that call. Uh, he worked for me for four or five years, but he wasn't even suspicious to me. But uh, I guess you're going to have to teach me something about this stuff. Well, you know, I, I often wonder what the next crisis is going to be. Because, uh, I swear I can't recognize him. I don't know anything about it. Uh, it's a thing that you just can't tell. Sometimes, just like in the case of this fossil ejection, there was yeah. no indication in any way. No. And I knew him pretty well, and uh, Deloach did also, and there was no suspicion, no indication. There are some people who walk kind of funny and so forth, that you might kind of think are a little bit off, uh, often maybe queer, but there was no indication of that. Beverly Gage, when Johnson says to Hoover in that call, I guess you're going to have to teach me something about this stuff, C can you dare posit what he might have been meaning? That is an amazing comment. And, uh, you know, I think there are two ways to read it. One is a kind of insider, Edgar, we all know that there are these stories and rumors about you. Uh, the other is, Edgar, you've been in charge of having to police the sex lives of federal workers in particular for 20 years at that point, right? It was, in fact, 
federal policy um, that if you were gay, you could not be employed in the federal government. And it was the FBI that did most of those investigations, which really peaked in the 50s during the Lavender Scare. So what did Johnson mean there? Uh, we can we can read it in a couple of ways. Um, that episode that they're talking about is also interesting in its own right. Um, Walter Jenkins, it's a very sad story. He was you know, a prominent Johnson aide, as you said, was caught having sex with another man. And it was a big issue right in the run-up to the 1964 election. Johnson does a couple of things. One, he calls on Hoover and says, do an investigation, make sure that we can defend ourselves, that there's no national security issue because the suspicion was, or the accusation was that if you were gay, you could be blackmailed into say, giving secrets to the Soviets because it was so combustible. Um, so Hoover does that investigation and clears everyone. Uh, and then on the other hand, he's actually in the end, kind of uh, sweet and thoughtful toward Jenkins himself. And, and really sees this as a as a kind of human tragedy. And uh, you know, part of the end of that phone call or, or a similar phone call, Johnson says, you know, you've just been really kind of been a mensch here, Edgar. Um, and Hoover and Johnson were pretty good friends. So it's 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 a complicated story. I wonder what insight you have though into how Hoover uh existed in in this space right is it is it a fine for me but not for you just kind of simple selfishness um or something else and the reason why i ask is because i think in this day and age professor gage a lot of americans you know look at some of uh the 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 politicians and elected leaders they thought they once recognized but don't recognize that person anymore. And, and I'm just wondering, is there anything that you learned from researching this aspect of Hoover's life that helps you understand how someone can um, behave so differently uh, publicly than, than they do in their own lives, their own private lives? Yeah, well, it's worth saying that we actually don't know whether Hoover and Tolson were lovers. We know that they were a very firmly embedded social couple, um, that they cared about each other deeply, but we don't know what they were doing sexually to the degree that that matters. And of course, they themselves not only denied, but aggressively policed any suggestion that they were a gay couple. So if you happened to be at a dance or a cocktail party or hanging around Washington and you made a joke about a rumor that you had heard that the director's sexuality was in question, you might actually get an FBI agent showing up at your door, knocking on the door saying, hello, ma'am, we've heard that you had this to say about the director, and you should never say such a scurrilous, terrible thing about, uh, you know, our wonderful director. Um, so part of it was that he just policed this in very aggressive ways and in ways that very few people would have the power to do. Um, and then I think he was just not an introspective person. He was very self-protective. Uh, he was very aggressive about looking after his own self-interest. Um, and he wasn't inclined to, uh, I think, ponder his own contradictions himself. Mm. I will say, though, that in, in your book, you... Uh 
note that uh, in some of the letters that Hoover wrote to a young FBI agent in the mid-30s, Melvin Pur- Purvis, you say that uh, Hoover's letters were turn- were by turns funny, tender, solicitous, and flirtatious <laughs> as, as well. Um, but, you know, you mentioned about Hoover sending FBI agents to people's doors if they even dared to whisper um, uh, uh, under their breaths about a potential relationship he had with a man. That get, brings us back to this question about his abuse of power, not only in terms of the, the lavender scare, but his pursuit of civil rights activists. We, we played that tape earlier about what we what the nation discovered later regarding um, uh, what the FBI did with Dr. King. His pursuit of communists, real and imagined. I mean, what allowed uh, Hoover to so expansively use and abuse the power he had as director of the FBI? I think there are a couple of key things that help us make sense of that. I think our image is that, you know, Hoover was crafty and doing everything in secret in a back room. And, And there is some truth to that. I mean, so the FBI's ability without any mechanisms of accountability to sort of start its own secret programs was pretty profound during Hoover's years. And and the reforms of the 1970s after his death were were mainly geared in that direction to try to bring some scrutiny and some transparency to what the FBI was actually up to. Um, But I think there are a couple of other things that are really important as well. Uh, One is that he actually had pretty widespread support, often from the White House, sometimes from the public at large, to engage in these kinds of campaigns. Uh, He was incredibly popular and widely supported in Washington at the peak of the Red Scare in uh, 1953-54, right, this era that we tend to describe to ourselves as being a a kind of peak era of civil liberties abuses. Um, Hoover had popularity ratings that went into the 70s, 80s, and 90s, as he is being very explicit, not about every detail of FBI investigations, but about the broad sweep of the anti-communist campaign. And in fact, he is seen as the kind of responsible alternative to someone like Joseph McCarthy. Mm. Okay. So, you know, um, of the many lessons that we can draw from um, Hoover's life and influence in in the FBI. There's something that you said earlier that really caught my attention, uh, Professor Gage, and that is um, we see sort of an expansion it, when uh, Hoover um, really uses his power in the way that he did of the acceptance of the of the growth of a national security state. That was roughly what you had said. And that just reminded me, you know, Things went so far as we heard Johnson at the beginning of the show there um, essentially, you know, through an executive order saying, J. Edgar Hoover, you can basically be FBI director for life. Now, of course, the law has been changed um, since then. But, you know, after 9-11, we saw another massive expansion of the national security state. And it just made me think that, you know, here is the perfect example of how maybe even under the slightest bit of social pressure – the attacks of 9-11 were not a slight bit. It were major social pressure. But, but the United States is pretty willing to put vast amounts of power in the hands of very few. That's one of the things that I, uh, I see coming out of your book that really leaped out at me. That's absolutely right. And most of the moments when Hoover gets a big expansion of power 
are these moments of national emergency where things have to be done quickly, uh, where there's not a lot of time to do advanced planning, um, and in which uh, if you are there, as he often was, with the skills and the bureaucracy and the enthusiasm and the willingness to kind of step up, you can accrue an awful lot of power. And I think that that has been true at many moments since then as well. Well, so moments of national emergency. I mean, th- through uh, Hoover's life, we have the Cold War as being seen as this long-term national emergency But some of the other things that allowed Hoover to expand his power weren't necessarily emergencies. They were, you know, Americans fighting for for their rights. And yet, nevertheless, he was he he was able to to use under the, you know, the aegis and approval of various presidents, those very powers. Yeah. And I think in our contemporary imagination, that's the period of Hoover's life that still has the most power, the most resonance, um, are his attacks on the civil rights movement, on King, on the Black Power movement, the New Left, student activists, the anti-war movement, the women's movement, right? All of that that's going on in the 60s. And part of the project of my book is to explain how did we get to that moment? How did we get to a moment where Hoover could decide to send federal agents to uh, do advanced scoping of Martin Luther King's hotel rooms, walk in, plant bugs and microphones in his hotel lamps, record his sex life, and send threatening notes to Martin Luther King. (laughs) And it's you know, an outrageous moment. I should say that King letter that you mentioned, I found the first unredacted copy of it in the National Archives, which was probably my favorite archive find uh, of this whole project. Um, but how did we get to that moment? Uh, and that's really what, what what the book is about in many ways. Mm. Well, we have about 30 seconds left, Beverly. What would you say is an aspect of Hoover's legacy that you didn't know before your long research for this book, but you came away with? I guess I ended up being most surprised about the moments that I could agree with what he was doing. And he does have, uh, despite this track record, a few redemptive moments. He opposed Japanese internment in the Second World War. He took a big campaign against the Ku Klux Klan in the 1960s. And so uh, I think even J. Edgar Hoover um, has, has a complicated story for us all. Wow. The same man whose fraternity embraced the Southern lost cause myth. Amazing. Well, Beverly Gage, the new book is G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. And we have a link to it, an excerpt of it at onpointradio.org. Professor Gage, thank you as always for coming on the show. Thanks. It was great, Magna. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. On Point.